You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Kathy Kelly is an award-winning nonviolent peace activist and the author of Other Lands Have Dreams, From Baghdad to Pekin Prison. After graduating from Loyola University in Chicago in 1974, Kathy Kelly taught religion long enough to realize she needed to learn much more about the Gospels and social justice. She studied within schools offering master's degrees in religious education in the Hyde Park area of Chicago, earning an MA in 1979, but believes her most important schooling happened after she moved to Chicago's uptown area. There, Catholic worker and Jesuit volunteer corps activist welcomed her as part of a diverse and highly energetic community, living in accordance with their deepest beliefs. Kelly's refusal to cooperate with wars has led her to prisons, peace team efforts in war zones, and a constant challenge to learn and grow. Her belief in the Eucharist, the mystical body of Jesus, and resurrection began to make sense when beholding communities dedicated to becoming Christ for others and refusing to be intimidated even by the threat of death. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Kathy Kelly and I talk about her journey into being an anti-war peace activist and how the evils of militarism and war don't offer us true security. We discuss the importance of being literate in the stories of war and how the fears of others shouldn't drive our actions. We explore how building relationship and community can help us foster hope while advocating for peace. And we discuss how Christian discipleship calls us to humility and a life of learning. Enjoy! Hi, Kathy. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so drawn to your title, but I'm also very happy to see you again. Yeah, it's uh, really lovely to connect with you as well. As as you may know, I've been uh, an admirer and a, a fan of, of your work and your leadership as a peace activist, probably since I first became familiar with you and what was at that time Voices in the Wilderness, I believe, back in the early 2000s when I was a college student. And I was studying history at the time and becoming more and more convinced that killing and militarism and war was was wrong and the call of the christian was to resist it in all the ways that we could and yet you've so you've been an, an anti-poverty and anti-war activist for decades though for longer than i've been alive and and i really admire your dedication and to jesus's nonviolent vision of beloved community i'd like to hear a little bit about your journey 
How did you become a leader in the peace movements? Well, I think I was a late bloomer in terms of uh, tiptoeing into activism. Probably the most important sort of finishing school for me was to move into a community on the north side of Chicago called Uptown. And all of a sudden, there was just this huge sense of relief. I was in amongst people who had made a decision, a pretty clear decision that they were going to align their lives with what they really believed in. And there was so much to be done in this community. It was a community where many of the people really had no way to have a meal unless they came to a soup kitchen. So there was soup to be cooked and people often didn't have a place to stay unless there was a mat in a shelter basement for them to lay their heads. And then there were, there were teenagers who were so caught up in gang activities that they, they found it very, very hard to escape. And then there were many new people moving in after one influx from Vietnam of people seeking refuge from war. Then there were people coming from Central America, again, seeking refuge from war. And it's the height of the Cold War, and we were all kind of gripped by the idea that one of these intercontinental ballistic missiles buried under the ground in the Midwest, there were 1,000 of them, wow. uh, could fly. And then there were, of course, uh, missiles on the uh, submarines and missiles on the planes. And so it was a very, very challenging time. But I was in with a group of people that would just, you know, roll up their sleeves and say, well, I'm going to start here and I'm going to... <laughs> you know, stir this pot or clean this shelter or host this study group. And so it was a very heady time, really. And the community was so interesting. The people that were living on the streets all had very, very interesting stories to tell. Though many could break your heart and, you know, people didn't last sometimes uh, in this world for very long, given the harshness of their lives. So I don't, I don't think I was really any kind of a leader. I was a good listener and I, I had so much to learn. You know, it's interesting. What sort of gave me a passport into having a leadership role involved two things that most people would think, you know, would trounce you right out of leadership. One was to become an ex-con. It's, it's remarkable what going <laughs> to prison can uh, occasion in terms of people saying, well, maybe this person has something to say. Hmm. Um, so that sort of went down the resume. I did a year in prison for planting corn on top of nuclear missile silo sites. And, hmm. um, you know, I, prisons ought to be taken apart brick by brick. I mean it. They're hideous mm -hmm. representations of human caging gone wild in this country. But I did learn an awful lot. It was a good year of learning for me. And it was a, a way of beginning to learn about racism in our society and in myself that I don't think I could have experienced with more impact in any other way. And then the other thing was that sort of gave me a little bit of a, a way to be more expressive of leadership occurred when I sort of found myself, I don't want to say willy-nilly, but it wasn't anything I particularly planned for. I, I learned about a peace team that was going to try to uh, interpose itself between the warring parties in Iraq. Now, what did I know about Iraq? 
I could spell it. I could find it on a map if you gave me some time. Yeah. In a way, I had no business going to that part of the world. But I did by that time have a very dedicated, strong, deep belief that we, particularly as Christians, ought not to loan ourselves, lend ourselves in any way to be part of these killing machines, but we ought to loan ourselves to be part of the opposite, to try to say, put down the weapons, stop, wait, let's try to see if there can't be negotiation. Don't send soldiers, send us. So I was part of a group of people who had really heard Daniel Berrigan's words. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan said, one of the reasons we don't have peace is because the peacemakers are only ready to kind of lay down half their lives for peace. The soldiers have to put, you know, go all in, but the peacemakers say, well, you know, I I would, but, or I've got time for this, but not for that. I'm not going to risk. So, so this was a pretty risky deal to go over to Iraq and be part of a peace team interposing itself between the warring parties. And Upon return from that, I was a different person in many ways. I had taken on some leadership roles within the peace team because there sometimes wasn't someone else that could step up to the plate because people had to leave. They had to go back to their homes, to their families, and I was able to stay. So I stayed on, and then you know we began to realize that the ceasefire had been declared, but these economic sanctions were still in place and, you know, materials weren't getting into Iraq. So we, and then we began to realize, well, if you hire this truck and this driver and make these plans, you can get a convoy of supplies to go in and maybe, you know, better protect the roads. So one thing led to another, and, and I stayed in the region until August of that year. Um, that war in 1991 had begun in January. And so um, I stayed away from Chicago and in the Middle East, either in Iraq or Jordan until August of 1991. So when I came home, I felt as though I couldn't just walk away Mm. from what we had experienced in Iraq. And so I'm still at this point, not an expert by any means, um, although I, I, I do study and read quite a lot. At that time, you know, I, I can understand why I shouldn't have been, you know, allowed into the cadre, if you will, of people that would be leaders in the peace movement. But there was a kind of a, a willingness to to ask questions. You know, well, what what did those people learn while they were over there? We didn't learn the language, and we should have. Mm. Um, there was much that we didn't understand, but we did know that the United States had committed a terrible atrocious, cruel crime against people who meant us no harm. So that positioned me, I suppose, to continue to practice nonviolence in the, it, it, mostly in the, at that time through organizing, through figuring out what has to be done in order to organize a peace team and try it again uh, because the wars kept breaking out. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And then your life just uh, continue to unfold. And it seems like you, from my observation, at least is that you discovered that this was your vocation, that this, you could really offer your gifts 
by immersing yourselves more deeply into the movements. And, and I, you mentioned the, the one arrest that was transformative to you, but I know you've been arrested countless times for civil disobedience and really putting your body on the line in the way that you learned to do so from Father Dan Berrigan. So that's interesting to me because I'm, I'm, and I'm curious what you would have to say for, to other people who are sort of grappling with the question of like, how, who are they meant to be? And, and what are they supposed to commit themselves to? And how, how can they just find where, where they fit in, in movements and, mm. and work for social change? I really love that word vocation, uh, vocare to call. And I think that we should, first of all, begin by giving ourselves a pat on the back. Um, <laughs> okay. <you> know, <laughs> there are seasons in a person's life. And if it's the season to take time out, to step back, to take more time to explore and think and meditate, that's fine. That's really needed as well. I think, though, that sometimes um, that question of fear mm. is worth more thought, you know, to really question it. Because a lot of times in my life, I know I was tempted to be governed by other people's fears. And they weren't necessarily my own fears. <laughs> and so why would I do that? You know, why would I allow myself to be governed by or guided by the fears that other people might have, either for me or about what my actions might be perceived to do to them? And now this gets to, to some very sensitive ground, Julia, really, because I, I do love my family members and they've loved me and I owe them all so much for having such a lot of security in my life. But I think my family members at this point, thinking back, would acknowledge that they were afraid uh, for me. And so they didn't want me to do things that would be fearful to them, even if I really didn't feel, quite feel that fear. I mean, suppose if you could imagine that one of your sisters is going up, 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 up onto the high dive and you're terrified for her. She can't do that. She can't swim. She's going to kill herself. She shouldn't do that. And then she's out on the edge and maybe she's kind of fearful too. And, you know, her lips are turning blue and she's full of goosebumps, but she does it. Mm -hmm. And then she is happy as a clam because she took that step. Well, I sometimes think when a person grapples with the fears they actually do have, and finds the courage to overcome that fear, then it really didn't, wouldn't make very much sense to sort of go back into being hidebound by the fears that others might have, either of what you're doing or for you or about what you do might do to them. Um, mm -hmm. So those are, it's, it's sensitive. That's why I like your title for the podcast, Messy Jesus Business. It is kind of messy because it requires <laughs> a, a lot of um, conversation. But then ultimately, I think we, we also have to ask ourselves, well, who am I called to be in my relationship to a very important person in our lives? And that's Jesus. Mm -hmm. So um, I needed some backup <laughs> to be able to deal with those kinds of questions. And I found it in, in spades, really, in that community in Uptown and among some very, very, very close friends. But then I found it, you know, with the peace team effort internationally, 
linking to people who came from backgrounds very, very different from my own, but who then became very important in my life. Mm, yeah, the importance of leaning into communities so that we can, um, you know, confront our fears and not let our feel, fears freeze us. But, but in fact, we can gain the courage, right? Right. And that's what I think courage is, the ability to control our fears. Everybody feels fear. Mm-hmm. But courage is just what you've said, the ability to control it so that you're not controlled by the fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the Gospels have a lot to say about that. You know, it's interesting how many times Jesus says to his disciples who are terrified for good reason, right. don't be afraid. And, yeah. and the symbolism that those just genius like experts uh, created that their that their audiences would get right away, and that we don't always, you know, figure out. But I mean, the, the disciples in the boat, so terrified. People really believed that evil spirits and dangerous spirits, you know, resided in the waters. But they were also knowing that, just in a very concrete way, if they kept pushing the envelope to make overtures to the Gentiles, to the enemy, to try to, you know, whittle down those divisions that they could be prosecuted, they could be persecuted, they could be killed. And that was very fearful. I mean, yet we just, we don't see Jesus um, moving very far away from that uh, invitation, don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he models for us how to remain steady, I think, in the midst of the chaos. Being not afraid does not mean avoiding our fears, <laughs> right? But it's probably about knowing that the things that we're afraid of cannot actually destroy our spirits. And our mm-hmm. spirit is stronger than the fears. Yeah. And then also, um, I think there's um, there's just such a wide variety of ways that you learn how to control fears. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the high dive idea because yeah. that was one uh, time of being enormously afraid. But, you know, sometimes... For younger people, it's, you know, you, you start a new job and you don't even know where the bathroom of this place is and everything looks kind of shaky or for even younger people, you know, maybe not now in a time of COVID, but, you know, you walk into the high school cafeteria and, you know, where am I going to sit? Right. So there are lots of ways that we learn to get a grip on our fears. But then I think in terms of some of the great terrors that our planet faces, I'm thinking of climate catastrophe and mass incarceration and refugee populations. Uh, these, these are things that are creating and sowing great, great terror. And so how do we start to grapple with really approaching and coping with those terrors. And I think a lot of it has to do with taking on the militarism in our society and saying, you know what, you do not give us security. This is not where we find our security in being able to aim a gun at other people or nuclear weapons or subordinate ourselves to a a kind of a, a constant threat that if you don't toe the line, you could be yourself uh, pepper sprayed or tasered or imprisoned. And we just can't go along with that in our society. So I think collectively standing up and catching courage from one one another is, is very, very important in our time. 
Mm, amen. Let's talk a little bit about <laughs> the monster of militarism, can we? <laughs> I know that um, lately you've been working on banning killer drones. You've been also working to end the blockade and bombing of Yemen. And yet the war machine is ginormous. How do we take on a different framework as Christians here in the United States about how we're in relationship with this machine? Well, sometimes I think it's helpful to take a very close look at the machine itself. I've been aware of these uh, paveway missiles and, um, you know, the, I love the language in scripture about make straight the way of the Lord, you know, pave the way through the mountain for the goodness to come through. But why anybody would dub one of these missiles with the words paveway is itself kind of chilling. It's got an eerie connotation. What are you paving the way for? But there's a man named Jeffrey E. Stern who wrote a cover magazine story for the New York Times. And he decided, okay, I am going to trace a paveway missile from where it starts in Arizona to where it ends up. And so the, the kind of missile that he traced uh, was a Raytheon manufactured laser guided missile. So he got familiar with the actual factory, who goes to work there, what, what kind of work do they do? And the missile ends up being about the size of a compact car. Wow. And it's loaded onto a warplane. So the missile he's tracing is sold to the Saudis and the Saudis loaded onto their warplane. And of course they're doing surveillance and using drone warfare as well around the country of Yemen. And in Yemen, one of the crucial infrastructure needs is ways to get water. And there is drought in various parts of the country. So in a very remote rural area of Yemen in a city called, not even a city, a town called Arhab, people realize we've got to do something. We do not have water. Our, our flocks are thirsting to death. We can't irrigate our crops. We've got to get water. And so they did something which made a lot of sense, but was very, very risky. They pooled their money to collectively get a rig to dig. And for weeks, the rig dug and didn't come up with any water. And so you can imagine the mistrust, the fear, the anxiety. Did we lose all the money? We borrowed that money in the first place. How can we pay it back? We don't have any water. And then one night, Eureka, they hit water. And so the townspeople were in high celebration mode. Now they had heard that the Saudis don't like infrastructure that hits water, but they thought we're so far away, who would waste a bomb on us? They thought wrong. So the Saudi warplane flew over, saw the group of people celebrating, and it was just at that point when they were breaking up the celebration, beginning to go home, that a Saudi pilot hit the button, releasing this weapon that's about the size of a compact car, and it's dangling up in the sky above from a long fuse. And then as soon as that fuse breaks, it's as though the weapon comes alive. It sprouts fins that are the laser guidance. And it started hurtling toward the ground, and it was able to pinpoint exactly where that celebration was breaking up when the nose cone hits the ground 200 pounds of tnt explode there's like a vacuum of air which is enough to kill somebody 
Um, but the shards from the missile go flying in all directions and they fly eight times faster than the speed of sound. Oh. So you can imagine when these shards are flying, if that shard hits you, you could become blinded, you could be decapitated and not survive, you could be maimed, you could be so badly wounded, your limbs could be torn off from your torso, your bowels, bowels could be rearranged. It's just hideous. And they're out in the middle of a mountainous rural area, no ambulances, no first aid. The next morning, sur survivors who were family members who realized our family members didn't come back last night and there was some commotion. So they went out and as they started to move in the direction where they thought something had been a big commotion, the children went running, you know, how kids are, you can't restrain them. So there were 100 people gathered beginning to cope with this and the warplanes came back and the people went diving into the fields. They were running as fast as they could. They felt they were being chased. They said it wasn't like an attack. It was like an, an extermination. And so ultimately 42 people were killed in our head. And there were many, many more wounded. And so Jeffrey Stern lands in Arhab and tries to interview the various people. And he met one man named Fahad. And Fahad's leg was permanently damaged. He could never really use it. He, oh, every day he had hideous headaches. He um, could never forget the trauma of that night. But he, he got to know Jeffrey and welcomed him into his home and, and they, conversed quite a bit. And then he took Jeffrey's hand and he said, feel my face. And Jeffrey could feel the metal embedded in his Fahad's cheek and his forehead and his jawbone. And he ends his article saying, I had traced the journey of a US manufactured weapon from Arizona to the face of a man who thought he had something to celebrate two years ago. So when I try to follow the trajectory of an actual attack, the missile, who made it, then it seems like, you know, you're not just looking at numbers and statistics, you have Fahad's face and image in your mind. Yeah. And I think that's what people need to do. We need that kind of literacy. We have to become literate in the stories of war. Artists help us to do that constantly and with great depth and enormously. And I think that to a certain extent, storytelling is something that can always be updated to our immediate present because we are such a militarized society. It's almost as though the dominant religion in the United States has become militarism and militarization. Yes, yes. And yet it's an invisible religion to so many because we're taught to celebrate it from, I mean, childhood in our schools. Thank you so much for telling that story. Well, you, you're an excellent storyteller. And you, I am aware that, so Voices in the Wilderness, correct me if I, if I get this wrong, but it became Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which in 2020 um, came to a closure. Yet somewhere along the way, I learned that the mission was to stop the next war by telling the truth about the current war. And I was captivated by that. 
And it's also capturing that that phrase captures a lot of what you just did for us in telling that story. You told us the truth about a war that's happening. And hopefully this will move hearts and and our behaviors and compel us all to resist the future wars or to stop militarism in general. I am curious, though, about what other roles storytelling plays in peacemaking and in community building for you. Well, there's a lot of delight in rubbing shoulders with people who are kindred spirits and who are very, very interesting. So, of course, when people get together, they tell their stories about their experiences. And when I've been part of peace teams that um, have arrived in a, a war zone, uh, you, you, you do have to do something to keep yourselves you know, cohesive as a community for day after day after day. And so um, I've been impressed by and very, very grateful for the role of communities coming together for meditation and reflection and often prayer and song and stories. And uh, that, that was utterly essential with the, um, what we call the Iraq peace team in 2003. We went to Baghdad and we said, well, we're going to stay here. We don't feel that we could possibly say to people who've given us so much hospitality on all the years when we were going to break the economic sanctions, we couldn't say, well, we've got blue passports and it's looking a bit dangerous, so we're out of here. So we stayed. And, you know, every morning we sort of needed a little bit of time to identify, you know, what are we doing here and and and, and what grounds us and, and what's go- you know going to be on the agenda for the day in a sense. So we found that the spiritual center for our group rested in a particular person, Neville Watson. He was a British lawyer and also a minister in the Uniting Church of Christ who came from Perth, Australia. And I had first met him in 1991. He was part of this Gulf Peace team. And Neville was so dignified, so creative, so genuine, so warm. People loved him. So we'd go to Neville's room in the morning and sit down and he would always have put together some reflection and music. Well, on the day that the troops entered Baghdad, the United States troops, invading troops entered Baghdad, it was chaos. We had no idea whether possibly looters would get to where we were. We didn't know the troops were coming in, but we did know that looting systematically was a matter of, you know, people losing their property, their belongings, and possibly being taken hostage. So it looked like, you know, that if the looters had any sense, they'd come for these Americans that are inside that hotel. And so we we suddenly felt quite vulnerable and we didn't want any gun battle to break out. So we were telling the hotel workers, you know, whatever you do, if they take us hostage, we all sign forms. We knew this is what we were, you know, possibly risking. There was a big gulp going on, believe me, and we were hiding our passports and hiding our cameras and tape recorders or whatnot. And then It turned out the U.S. military arrived there first, and they parked right outside our hotel. And of course, you know, again, messy Jesus business. There we are protesting the war, but to tell you the truth, we were kind of relieved that the Marines got there before the looters. But then, so I want to go back to Neville, because he got a grasp of this whole scene, the Marines stopping right in front of our hotel and beginning to come out of their armored personnel carrier hatches and sort of lighting up cigarettes and chatting with one another, but transforming the whole scene. 
And Neville did two things. He got his tape recorder and he pressed play and he played a song by Leonard Cohen called Anthem. Oh. Ring the bell that still can ring. There is a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. And it's a song about how the dove, she will be bought and resold and bought again. And it's a very compelling song. So that's filling the space. And then he had a large poster on which legibly was written, war equals terror. And Neville held up his sign. And others of us eventually filtered down and bought bottled water to the newly arrived Marines and conversations started. But Neville not only wouldn't put his sign down, he wouldn't take a drink of water. He wouldn't eat a morsel. We said, Neville, please take a break. You know, not, your legs are starting to shake. You can't stand there all day. Until the sun went down, Neville stood there with his sign that said war equals terror. And I think that was part of our mission to tell that story. That as President Bush was saying, we will not allow other countries to have weapons of mass destruction. We had to tell that story and mm -hmm. that war equals terror. Wow. Wow. Part of what is fascinating about that story and the picture you just painted there is how you, I think, are really encapsulating the, 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 the Christian virtue of we love the sinners, <laughs> but we hate the sin. And if even though militarism is evil, is a sin, is a social, great social sin that causes a lot of destruction in the world, the Marines are, are children of God who have dignity, who deserve honor, who deserve respect. And we can resist actions and behaviors and systems and policies that are wrong and still love every person that God allows us to encounter in our life, can't we? Well, and learn from people as well. You know, I, when I think about love of the enemy in our time now and who is the enemy, if you will, I have to say on January 6th, when I was looking at the people assaulting the Capitol, I thought, oh, <laughs> I didn't necessarily think that's the enemy, but I sure wanted to think that's not me. Mm. And then President Biden went on TV and he said, that's not us. And then I said, oh, wait just a minute. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. This is exactly who we've been when we have ransacked Baghdad and other capitals all throughout the world. When we have just gone forth with our enormous sophistication of weaponry, or sometimes our very, very unsophisticated night raids and Abu Ghraib style imprisonments and torture. This is who we are in the eyes of other people around the world who see us as the most menacing force in the world. And so, you know, what can I learn from someone who is saying almost like, a, you know, with a Visigoth, you know, barbaric to me spirit, we're going to triumph over this spot. Well, have I not been living very, very well comfortably in a culture that is pretty much said to places all around the world, if you don't subordinate yourselves to fulfill our national interest and make our way of life a non-negotiable, 
will make your lives miserable, will threaten you, will persecute you, will starve your children. So that that's the kind of you know curtain parting that I need. Um, mm. you know, I, 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 I don't think I can talk about love of enemy without recognizing in a sense that the, the enemy within in a sense because of my own voracious desire for comfort and security. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Or so- my expectation that I somehow have a God-given right to take mm-hmm. more of the world's resources mm-hmm. than somebody in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Who made that decision? Right, right. You know, and I think what I'm hearing there is is a lot about the importance of remaining humble and not becoming righteous or you know prideful in in the work that we do. We need to be con and called to continual conversion. We are all students here. We all have things to learn. We all are dealing with prejudices and bias and violence and are impacted by these social sins. Like it has gotten into our hearts. And so we have to continue to do this, this work of transformation from the inside out. And, or maybe it's a both and we're doing the work externally as well as internally. Yes. Oh, goodness. What I'm conscious of as a person who's sort of like I feel like I dapple in the peace movement. I kind of move in and out and <laughs> involved and concerned. And then, and then I get like overwhelmed and I turn to self-care and, and I don't have the same amount of dedication to it as you do, even though I have the desire. And I think it's because I can get so overwhelmed and discouraged. And, and yet it seems to me that you're really grounded and you're, you really are embodying the peace that you're working for in this world, even though you're totally conscious of the horrors. I'm wondering what you have to say to people like me who sometimes struggle with remaining hopeful when it comes to believing in a world that is made up of more peace than violence. Well, I can remember going to your convent with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration when you were a very young novice, I think. Yeah, I was a new finding such hope in the, in the belief that you could keep this spark alight 24-7 all the time. I, I drew from that actually a, a, a great sense of determination. And I loved going to Afghanistan and telling young friends in Afghanistan that the reason that I could come with enough funding to help them supply you know women with material to make heavy blankets so that refugees might survive the winter was because there are these women who believe in that spark so i think we are all part of one another i think that that is so practically true in nitty-gritty ways and that's a very very important um, recognition to carry with us had it not been for you and your generous determination to make sure that a grant was delivered once a year that enabled all kinds of projects far away on the other side of the planet, uh, those young people wouldn't have been able to keep their group together. It was very, very dependent on the generosity of other people. And, and, and you know, I'm so fortunate because I'm the person who was able to sit in their midst and get a chance to identify faces with names, with eventually personalities and stories. And that's all very, very life-giving. So I'm mindful, very, very mindful of the people who were dealing with paperwork and bank accounts and (laughs) um, 
grants and you know making sure that it was in the envelope and that. So I, I, I think that there should never be a sense of hierarchy, like, you know, these are the frontline people. I think we are all part of one another. And then, you know, you had mentioned before we began the formal interview that you've really found a space where you are happy to be. And that's just so crucial. If we're finding ourselves in a space where we can say to others, come on in, the water's fine. Mm -hmm. then we're in a very good spot because others will come. Whereas if we find ourselves in a space where we're saying, <laughs> run, flee, never do this. Well, you know, that's going to be uh, not very attractive to build a beloved community. So another awareness I have, though, is that in terms of feeling overwhelmed, if, if I personally spread the peanut butter too thin, the bread rips. Mm. And there are so many, you know, in a time of forever wars and so much privation and misery and need, there are so many, many different projects and requests and tasks, and they're all valid and they all should be attended to. But one person can't, you know, attend to as many things as sometimes come in and, um, you know, when we get to the point where opening up, our, you know, the computer feels like incoming, mm -hmm. you know, we, we really do have to um, be mindful of the fact that in this ocean of humanity, I'm one drop. Yeah, yeah. I'm responsible for my one drop's worth, uh, but not necessarily more than what one drop of, in the ocean could feasibly uh, commit. Mm. I'm hearing so much there about the importance um, of finding hope in other people. I mean, I think that's really what I'm hearing you say is, is what feeds you and nourishes your hope um, when there might be a temptation to discouragement is recognizing how God is working in others. And that, that's so beautiful and admirable to me. Thank you. Well, and could I just say that to hear about the young Yemeni women in their 20s fasting in Washington, D.C., and it's a you know water only with just some electrolytes added fast, and I believe they're on day uh, they've started their third week. Mm. Now, actually, I I'm nervous for them now mm. because you can end up with lifelong consequences of that kind of very rigorous um, fast. So they're suffering, um, but they just can't any longer abide with the idea that we are starving. Yemeni children through the imposition of the Saudi blockade, which depends so much on ships from the United States, on weapons from the United States, on cover at the United Nations from the United States. And so they are so serious. I mean, if I could go back to Daniel Berrigan again, one line from his poetry says, serious, serious, says my blood in the falling. And so that I, I, I do find great hope in a younger generation that is um, so clear in saying we cannot live with uh, the killing of the planet or of our brothers and sisters, and, and we are not going to go along with it. Hmm. Kathy, what is discipleship for you? To me, following Jesus is a matter of being like the the little guy in white in Mark's gospel who tries to hang with his Jesus up to the last minute 
and then he panics and he runs away. And he must have felt uh, just awful. Like I, I betrayed him. Everybody else did. I wasn't going to do that. And I fled. I ran. Um, this is in the um, chapter in Mark's gospel where the, the, the soldiers have just seized Jesus. And they go for the kid, too. But the child gets away, but his loincloth comes undone. Oh, yeah. So he runs away naked. And that is a sign of humiliation in the ancient Near Eastern world. You know, you want to have a symbol for humiliation, take somebody's loincloth off. And then after the women get to the tomb because they want to anoint the body of Jesus, they don't find Jesus. The stone has been rolled away and inside the tomb is a young man clad in a long white garment looking very dignified. And he says, in full authority, the one you are seeking is not here. Go tell everyone and don't be afraid. So I think I've, I find discipleship in knowing that the embrace of Jesus is for us in our panic, in our betrayal, in our failure, in our humiliations, in our times when we think, oh, I can't believe I did that. But also, that's not the end of the story, uh, that the embrace of Jesus is in our redemption, in our recovery of our best selves, in our reaching out to others, and in that beautiful phrase, don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. So finding our collective security in following Jesus, and in following Jesus, there is no room for rifles, for bullets, for put down for canceling, for cruelty. Uh, it, it's a, a place in which, and I again want to behold um, messy Jesus business, uh, but through that to, um, to, to hold the other person as a true subject of, of love and delight. Hmm. Amen. Thank you. There's a lot of messiness in this for you, but would you like to say a bit more about what is messy, about being a peacemaker in a militarized war world <laughs> and in war zones. Oh, well, I guess I should also put in the word colonized world. Yes. You know, we're living in a time when I come from the colonial culture and there's so much that has to be learned. And I think younger generations have done enormous work in um, featuring many of the questions that we, that we must ask ourselves. And, and rather than be defensive, um, it's important to let those defenses down, lay down our sword and shield and, and, and say, yeah, let's, let's try to be as truthful as we can about this and truly learn from others. Um, I think that it's messy because we literally don't speak the language of some of the people that we interact with and um, so how do we acknowledge that and you know still try to learn another person's language learn another person's culture uh, that that's very very important and, and and it's not always easy I think that the income inequality and the access to security or to leadership in a sense, there's, there's still a terrible, terrible inequality there. And, you know, we, we just get bamboozled by these fictions. You know, why should 
you know, one hour of one person's time be worth eight or 10 or 12 times more than one hour of another person's time when, you know, both people are doing essential work, you know, but, and yet we accept those structures. And so that of course is, is not only messy, it's deadly as we saw in this time of pandemic. So there's, there's plenty that requires thought and honesty. And I think intellectual honesty um, is something people are sometimes afraid of, but it's very, very important. Uh, you know, if I don't believe something myself, why would I ever teach it to other people? And uh, there are parts of Catholicism, which I think must be subjected to intellectual honesty in faith that we can have a Catholic, a, a unifying oneness. But first, we have to go through these processes and recognize what has been untrue and unfair. So uh, you know, the relegation of women to second-class status within the church is, is entirely wrongful, I believe, and has to be subjected to intellectual honesty. Do, do we honestly believe in infallibility of the Pope? I love Pope Francis. But I'm, I'm not ready to say that I could uh, say I believe that one person can be infallible. So there's th these kinds of things are all part of the messiness. But I think it's much better to approach that question and exploration with a sense of collegiality and, and humility. I, I, I think we should try as best we can to set aside over-righteousness, you know, a kind of... Um, as a school teacher, I think I developed a bit of the um, I know something you don't know. Attitude, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm the school marm and I'm in charge. Remember well, who's in charge? The system so, teaches that, doesn't it? I mean, that's kind of when we become teachers, that's that's just the system we fall into and you fall into that role. Right. Yeah. And there can be a kind of a prudishness that goes with it that says that if you don't follow the line, if you don't say the right things, then, you know, you're going to be stigmatized. And so I do think um, that academics in our modern culture would do well to also look in the mirror and ask themselves, is there some way in which we've kind of set ourselves up as the pedestal of righteousness, and if people don't toe the party line, we'll um, stigmatize people almost like, you know, you get the scarlet A on your shoulder, so do we, is that a good way to go forward or does it create greater fear and insecurity? Those are questions I would ask, but I don't, I don't feel like I have all the answers and no way do I want to stifle the brave and bold new expressions that are coming forth from uh, people who are saying, we're not going to put up with colonialism and racism any longer. Yeah. Thank you. We can be in the messiness <laughs> of gospel living in a way that allows questions to be part of the art form of co-creating the kingdom of God. And I think you're, you've explored that very well with your example of the importance of study and scholarship, but in a way that, that remains open and, and humble at all times to the fact that we're all on a journey, we're all growing together. Thank you so much, Kathy. And thank you for this time together and for coming on oh, Messy I'm so glad to have been with you. I do appreciate that you're doing this podcast. And I certainly want to wish the best to all the people who are listeners and who are part of your community. Thank you, Kathy. And how can listeners out there follow you in your work? 
Well, I'm very keen on this new group, Ban Killer Drones. We're trying to get an international treaty to prohibit weaponized drones. So you can just go to bankillerdrones.org and be in touch with that. To be in touch with me personally, um, I, I, I'm not that crazy about some of the social media. I, I'm, I'm still somebody who likes to just give out my email address. So, <laughs> kathy.vcnv at gmail.com is a good way to reach me. Also, I do do Twitter. So I'm, I, I took the voices in the wilderness um, into Twitter. And so I'm uh, at voice in wild. So there's, a, and then I do have a Facebook page. I don't remember what it's called. I guess it's just <laughs> kathy.facebook at gmail or something. Yeah. Um, uh, I was just on a call where people were saying, well, now you have to get on Slack. And I said, well, it's better than WhatsApp. And I, I, I just find all these new apps a bit of an annoyance when I about that and learn how to use them. So real time. <laughs> I'm glad we could connect this way. <laughs> and oh, it doesn't have to be a hindrance. Yeah. Well, thanks again. God bless you and stay Thank in you, touch, Julia. please. All right. Take good care now. All right. Peace. Bye-bye. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Kathy spoke about fear and water, and I'd like to share a passage from the Gospels where Jesus tells his followers to not be afraid. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases stick out for you. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. Then he made the disciples get into the boat and proceed him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. After doing so, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already a few miles offshore, was being tossed about by the waves, for the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. At once, Jesus spoke to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him in reply, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and began to walk on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw how strong the wind was, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? After they got into the boat, the wind died down. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com 
and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.